Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Have you been working hard to dominate your surgical residency? Do you want to help others to dominate no matter what stage of training they're in? Hi to all of our BTK listeners. My name is Nina Clark, general surgery resident at the University of Washington. And I'm Jessica Millar, general surgery resident at the University of Michigan. We both have had the privilege of working as behind the knife education fellows for the past year, and we're excited to continue growing our team. Are you a surgical resident interested and enthusiastic about surgical education? BTK is offering a two-year surgical education fellowship starting July 1st, 2023 and ending June 30th, 2025. Only residents who are starting a two-year block of professional development time away from full-time clinical activity will be considered, and you have to ensure that your institution and mentor approve of this fellowship. Fellows will be deeply involved in the BTK activities. The two of us have worked on an absite revamp, not tying video series, our new trauma video atlas, and a comprehensive student resource, just to start. While this is an unpaid internship, you'll have access to the, all the behind-the-knife resources, like illustrators, editors, recording and video equipment, and more to help make high-quality surgical education content. Applications are due April 16th, and you can find the link to the application in our show notes or on our Twitter page at Behind the Knife. You can also contact us at hello at behindthenife.org with any questions. We've had a great time so far this year, and there's only more to come. We hope you'll consider joining us. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife Critical Care Podcast. In this episode, we're going to tackle nutrition in the ICU. As usual, please welcome my co-hosts, Dr. Park from UT Southwestern and Dr. Bankhead from Texas Tech. Also today with us, we have a special guest, critical care guru, Dr. Vanessa Nomalini, a new associate professor of surgery at UT Southwestern. She will be joining us to give us her nutrition pearls in the ICU. <laughs> nutrition in the ICU has changed and continues to evolve a lot. Because of the high quality evidence that exists, we actually wanted to try to maximize the amount of evidence-based medicine in this journal review episode for you to have some key takeaways after listening. So instead of doing a deep dive on one or two articles, we're actually going to try and highlight some of the key evidence in the critical care literature. Before we jump in, however, we really wanna highlight one key resource, and that's the Joint Aspen and SCCCM Clinical Guidelines for Nutrition, first published in 2016, and now recently updated in 2021. This is an invaluable resource for all questions related to nutrition in the ICU. But first, before we talk about nutrition in the ICU, we have to talk about assessment. How do we determine nutritional status in the ICU? This can be incredibly challenging, and actually it becomes more challenging as the patient's length of stay increases. So who's using, for example, standard CRP, prealbumin, and albumin biomarkers in the ICU when they're rounding? Should we be even, even be using biomarkers? So let me add my podcasters. Dr. Bankhead, what are you using in the ICU? Yeah, so we'll kind of start first with what not to do. And I think we'd really be 
glazing over a large chunk in surgical time and history and a lot of our absite studying days, if we didn't mention serum protein markers like albumin and prealbumin and transferrin and retinal binding protein that historically we've been tested on um, and learned as being these quick conventional ways of assessing nutritional status in our surgical patients. But really, we now know that these are better thought of as reactors in your acute phase response as you see an increase in vascular permeability and you start to reprioritize that hepatic synthesis. So these are really not going to be a stellar checkbox for knowing and understanding the full nutritional status of your patient in the ICU. Using prealbumin as a number to guide nutrition is honestly how I grew up in the ICU in my early training, and I know a bunch of us have. Um, but even in that short amount of time since then, it's become obvious that you know it's really not the best well-rounded means of assessing nutrition. So let's talk about instead what we should be thinking about and scores we should be calculating and numbers we should be using. Uh, Vanessa, what is the Nutrix score? Well, the Nutrix score, or the Nutrition Risk and Critically Ill score, is the first nutritional risk assessment tool actually developed and validated specifically for ICU patients. The main concept behind the Nutrix score started with the recognition that not all ICU patients will respond the same to nutritional intervention. Most of the other scores and assessment tools that we have consider all critically ill patients, quote unquote, to be at high nutritional risk. So that's not really helpful because, as we know, every ICU patient is different. Uh, the factors that go into the Nutrix score include the patient's age, their Apache 2 score, SOFA score on presentation, number of comorbidities, days in the hospital to ICU admit, and as an option, their IL-6 level as an indicator of systemic inflammation. So essentially how old and how sick they are really is determining their Nutrix score. Um, so Caroline, can you take us a little bit more into how um, we then move into calculating their patient's actual caloric needs? Yeah, I think, you know, and I'm a very simple person, I like to think of it very simply, it's all about energy in, energy out, right? So negative energy balance is what we're trying to avoid. That's associated with increased morbidity, ICU length of stay, vent days, and organ failure. So we're trying to really avoid the underfeeding that happens. The overfeeding really is not very common, especially in the surgical ICU. So, you know, think about our patients. A lot of them have GI tract issues, ileus, they're a high risk for this. So into actual specifics, it's the positive nitrogen balance that is necessary to create an anabolic environment. You want to build things, but how do we actually measure this, right? There are physical manifestations for sure. Remember things like temporal wasting, poorly healing wounds, et cetera, but there's actual data to tell us that we're underfeeding versus overfeeding. And something that you'll look at is some, it's called indirect calorimetry. So a big part of that is the respiratory quotient. That is the difference in expired and inspired carbon dioxide and oxygen. It's a ratio between the two of them. Um, so, you know, if metabolism consists solely of lipids, the respiratory quotient is going to be approximately 0.7 for pro proteins, 0.8 for carbohydrates, 1.0. There are things like flow meters and hooded devices that you can use to actually calculate this in the ICU. And if we really want to go in specifics, there's the weir, the weir equation. Um, the rest of resting energy expenditure. Um, if you want to really go into the weeds, um, it's a rate, you know, uh, kilocalories per day, 1.44 times a ratio of uh, um, oxygen and carbon dioxide. Pro-indirect calorimetry. So there's the Tika Coast trial, 2011, repeated in 2020. There's a first study that demonstrated a decrease in 60-day mortality, but no change in bend days. They repeated it internationally, did not demonstrate a significant difference in mortality against indirect calorimetry. There's the EAT-ICU trial, which, you know, a lot of things that we do, early goal-directed therapy, so early goal-directed nutrition, looking at um, uh, versus standard nutritional care. And basically, there was no change in physical quality of life, infectious complications, and mortality. 
So Dumas, with all of these fancy things that we've just talked about, what's your go-to calculation? Yeah, so that's a good question. Honestly, at the bedside, I keep it simple. I try to keep it as, as straightforward as possible. So I tend to use the weight-based equation, uh, 25 to 30 kcal per cake per day to determine energy needs and energy expenditure. Um, and now this is really important. You have to reevaluate this number really every week, right? As your patient's evolving and things are changing in the ICU, or for example, if their wound burden is changing or if they're going to surgery. Um, and protein requirements are another thing, right? So I think that's the other main key that you have to keep in mind. So I like to target a range of between 1.2 and 2 grams per kilogram of body weight uh, per day of protein. Um, and, you know, I use, I only really make modifications or changes to the formulas I use or use energy dense formulations for patients that need volume restriction um, or have, a, you know, a risk for volume overload or have volume overload. And there are certainly some important subgroups, um, and hopefully all the listeners are familiar, but for example, trauma and TBI, uh, those kinds of patients, we would do want to target, in fact, a little bit more uh, of uh, caloric uh, intake. And so that's going to be usually between 20 and 35 kcal per, k, uh, per kg per day. All right. So let's do what we all love to do, and that is set up a good clinical scenario in our BTK ICU. Um, so let's say we have a patient, they've naturally got a prolonged ileus after an X-lap um, that Ryan did. And of course, they have had multiple bowel resections and are at moderate risk for short gut syndrome. And of course, they are also still on vasopressors. So Dr. Dumas, what are you going to do about starting enteral feeds? What day are you going to do it? And what data are you going to use to drive that decision? Well, first off, none of my patients ever get ileus. <laughs> But, um, you know, what I like to think about really is always the timing of initiation. So, um, you know, and what are the clinical factors that influence nutrition initiation? For example, an open abdomen or pressors may make you uh, um, reconsider or think uh, more, more closely about initiation. Um, but let's talk about uh, total enteral nutrition first. So I think overall, there's certainly a wealth of information that supports early initiation of enteric tube feeds uh, and is well associated uh, with improved outcomes. So generally, the rule of thumb is start uh, total enteral nutrition within 24 to 48 hours. I think the guidelines are pretty clear. They also they're also very clear that you really don't need any signs of overt GI motility. So that's key, right? So I know we ask our patients every day if they're passing flatus and all that, but quite honestly, um, it, it's probably uh, you really don't need any of those signs, right? Um, so really, we know that enteral nutrition maintains the integrity of the intestinal epithelium. It stimulates blood flow and improves gut immunologic function. Uh, and certainly, early TEN has been supported throughout the literature, and most recently by a large, well-done uh, meta-analysis of over, uh, excuse me, of 21 randomized control trials comparing early versus late initiation of enteral nutrition. And that uh, the authors found that that was that early nutrition was associated with a, a relative reduction of uh, 0.7 uh, in mortality. Um, and and in just an interesting study as well that's worth mentioning is the Eden trial from JAMA in 2012. And, and that, that group uh, of investigators compared early trophic feeds versus full enteric nutrition. And they've actually found no benefit for full nutrition. And actually, those patients had increased complications. So kind of the short answer to your question is, uh, you know, I started early within 24 to 48 hours of at least trophic feeds and kind of go from there. Um, so now what about TPN? Uh, and nutrition's evil cousin. Uh, when do you guys decide to start TPN? And what does the literature tell us? Um, well, there's certainly a, hand, a handful of landmark trials published over the years in the New England Journal of Medicine um, and, and some others more recently. 
um, and that actually are probably more pro TPN. And my interpretation is that of the data is that it may not be as bad uh, as we once thought. Um, that being said, you know, the guidelines still remain pretty clear on this too. There's no benefit to early TPN before seven to 10 days in the ICU. Um, unless, of course, you have a patient uh, that is uh, at high risk, um, uh, high nutritional risk based on, of course, as we discussed, our initial assessment. Then really, um, we should initiate uh, TPN if they can't tolerate TEN as soon as possible. And that, generally speaking, you know, rule of thumb is a nutric score greater than five. And one really important caveat that I think we lose sight of in a busy ICU with a lot of sick patients um, is that if you have a patient who's not meeting greater than 60% of their caloric needs via enteral nutrition, then that patient should be supplemented with TPN as well. Um, that being said, you know, the newest guidelines in the 2021 update to the Aspen guidelines, um, they're pretty clear. They, they, they conclude that uh, parenteral nutrition is, was not found to be superior to enteral nutrition and, and there's no differences in harm. Um, and uh, they, they, they essentially conclude that either is, is perfectly acceptable. Dr. Park, what do you think? Yeah, so actually, um, this is a great segue because we're going to go into a little pro-con debate about TPN. Um, I think it really depends on what you're looking at for the outcome and looking at the benefits of TPN over risk. I'm glad that you brought up the time period of, you know, average time period to sort of wait, I guess, before you start um, parental nutrition. I think we can all agree that supplementation in patients with prolonged NPO status is really necessary and it's better than nothing at all. The important question in my mind to ask is why, when, and for how long? Because there's really a big difference in a patient with short gut, as Dr. Bankhead was sort of mentioning this patient, versus a patient with prolonged ileus. So let's talk about, you know, initiation of TPN. Now, there's the CSER trial in 2011, um, you know, looking at late initiation, because that's what we used to practice, and maybe some of us still do this. It looked at late initiation at times of days for parental nutrition, and that it was associated with faster recovery and fewer complications as a pick compared to early nutrition. Dr. No Molini will go into the cons. Punchline is delaying initiation of TPN really did not worsen outcomes. Let's fast forward a couple of years. How about early initiation of TPN? That's the calories trial. So early, which is 36 hours, I personally think that's really early. Um, uh, TPN versus enteral, no difference in primary outcome. Less GI problems in the TPN group equally infectious complications, which is what a lot of us worry about with parental nutrition. There's the Nutria 2 trial, not to be confused with Nutria 1 and Nutria 3, the first one, which looked at gastric residuals, and Nutria 3, we actually looked at low-calorie, low-protein versus standard feeds. So Nutria 2, randomized control, open-label trial in France, published 2017 Lancet, basically found that there was uh, no uh, difference in, in um Infectious complications, however, greater risk of digestive complications in patients with internal nutrition. So, you know, really, I don't think there's as much of an infectious risk as we thought. Dr. Nomalini, what do you think? TPN for everyone or are you sparing? So, yeah, I, generally, you think the initial studies, the ones that you were alluding to historically, indicated that particularly during sepsis, uh, that early initiation of TPN was associated with worse outcomes and increased infectious complications. You know, as you can imagine, you're just giving the patient pure dextrose in their bloodstream that's feeding the, the bacteria. So that made sense with, for us. That's why we kind of, I think everybody kind of agreed that made logical sense. It was to the extent that the 2016 Aspen guidelines actually recommended against early TPN, so within the first seven days. However, there are actually two newer studies that don't have any fancy titles or anything that were published after these guidelines that were better powered, and they did indicate actually no differences in outcomes, including infection. And actually, when you parse through the papers, um, uh, it really looks like the, the improvements in central line care and glycemic control that have been done since then are likely the major contributors to these newer results. 
And so the safety and early initiation of TPN is now considered strong grade with high degree of evidence. But again, I think you have to consider your particular patient, their nutritional risk at, at admission. So all those things are, are things to, to, to take, take into account. Awesome. I love it. All right. So um, let's dispel some myths. I think there's a lot of dogma that permeates the ICU when it comes to nutrition. And so, you know, I'll, I'll take one. Um, there's been a lot of research and actually uh, Dr. Park just mentioned some, but of high protein versus a low protein uh, or uh, high density formulations versus um, low density formulations for, for patients in the ICU. And really there, there's no difference. Um, so I, I think, again, keep it simple, use a weight-based formula uh, and use a uh, kind of standard uh, formulation. So what else, what are the myths that we have? Uh, Dr. Bankhead, tell us about gastric residuals. What are they? Do you check them? Should we be? What does the evidence suggest? Yeah, I hate monitoring gastric residuals. And um, I think like all surgeons we love when literature supports our own biases. So um, in this case, that is true. So JAMA has a really good article, um, if you're looking for something to reference in your ICU, from 2013 by Rainier et al. Um, and the title of that article is The Effect of Not Monitoring Residual Gastric Volume on Risk of Ventilator-Associated Pneumonia in Adults Receiving Mechanical Ventilation and Early Intral Feeding. Uh, so they looked at 452 patients who had been intubated and had intral feeds started within 48 hours. Those patients were randomized to an intervention arm where intolerance of enteral nutrition was only based on clinical things at the bedside, so regurgitation and vomiting, versus a control arm where intolerance was based on that classic gastric residual reporting by the nurse of more than 250 mils in a six-hour window. The main outcome for this group was the proportion of ventilator-associated pneumonia in a 90-day period. Um, not unsurprisingly, the study found that there was no difference in VAP rates or in mortality, among other things, and the proportion of patients receiving 100% of their calorie goal was obviously higher in the intervention arm. Um, so I think for me, the biggest drawback, though, you know, and being realistic and honest about who this applies to of using this study for our patient population is that while three of the ICUs that they used were medical and six of them were med surge, an exclusion criteria in this study was a lot of the surgical things we do and talk about every day. Um, things like abdominal surgery within the month, a history of any kind of gastric or duodenal surgery, a GI bleed, the use of a jejunostomy or a gastrostomy. Um, so I think that does mean we have to consider how our patient population is inherently going to be quite different at baseline than the ones studied here. But I think it still gives us a really good um, baseline and a reference for uh, how gastric residual is just not um, not as important as we think. All right. Love it. So that's two myths busted. Okay, great. Perfect. All right. So Dr. Nomalini, off in here, we can't start T or excuse me, T-E-N because the patient is on pressors. What do you think? What's your take? So, yeah, clearly we've all had patients or have heard stories of patients who developed intestinal necrosis after enteral feeds were started while the patients were on pressors. However, the correlation may not be as clear as we previously thought. Um, between the benefits of the mucosa and therefore overall gut health, benefits of the microbiome, the gut immune system, and the overall metabolic benefits, we know now that the lack of enteral nutrition and prebiotic fiber delivery will actually increase the dysbiosis of the gut and then set patients up for a significant number of complications, right? Um, however, the data also very clearly shows that increasing doses of vasopressors, which I kind of interpret as really as a direct reflection of effective circulating volume and overall blood flow to the gut, may lead to intestinal necrosis, which will obviously lead to worse outcomes. But where's the line, though, right? Um, well, we really don't know, and it's probably patient-specific, like everything else in the ICU, 
Um, but what is interesting, though, is that when you look at the studies, that, that bowel necrosis doesn't actually seem to happen right away. And it's usually later in their feeding course when they're on pressors. And so I think we really don't understand this process quite well yet. Um, but um, recent data would suggest that given even 20% of your total ca uh, calculated caloric needs, so like trickle tube feeds, will prevent some of this dysbiosis and support gut immunity, and that low doses of vasopressors are not associated with intestinal necrosis. So I would say that the current recommendations say that it's safe to give with low-dose pressors, like an equivalent of five mics per min of norepinephrine or a total of 0.14 to 0.3 mics per cake per day, but that there also needs to be vigilance in the abdominal exam. So you have to know when there's increased abdominal distension, subjective evidence of increased pain, and to make sure that you stop the two feeds when this occurs, because uh, any of those things is going to increase that necrosis from happening. Love it. All right, great. All right. What about uh, the GI tract? Where to feed? Are we feeding the stomach? Are we feeding postpyloric? Dr. Park, what's your take? All right. Don't get me wrong. There are definitely some patients that benefit from postpyloric feeding. There are patients with some gastric motility problem, outlet obstruction, recent gastrostomy patients who otherwise cannot tolerate gastric feeds. But I think as a group, we are swinging away from that. You know, even for patients with acute pancreatitis, um, a lot of these patients are getting um, fed, uh, you know, through their stomach. So let's, you know, starting off with the two placement itself. Most of the time, it's going to be like a flexible tube, like a daub off, right? But it needs, like, if there's a wire in it, it needs some skilled placement. Oftentimes, even if you do place it, it doesn't want to travel past pylorus, even with using pro motility agents, which don't get me started, have their own problems. So, you know, these things are going to have phalanges that help walk the tube with peristalsis. The problem is, is that, you know, gastric residuals are still being checked and two feeds held because of the risk of aspiration, which then interrupts the patient's feed. They end up getting less calories. You know, you know, the, you know, the, uh, the outcome of that. So, now, let's look at a Cochrane review from 2015, which actually looked at this very question. 14 studies, randomized control trials, 1,100 patients looking at benefits of post-pyloric tube feeding versus gastric for reducing the rate of pneumonia, vent days, intake, and mortality, basically looking at complications from feeds. What they found was maybe some moderate quality evidence of a 30% lower rate of pneumonia with post-pyloric feeding. However, the authors really could not show any additional or sufficient evidence that any of these other clinical outcomes were affected. You know, if we look back at 2003, Critical Care, art, article by Merrick et al., basically really no uh, difference in incidences of pneumonia, length of stay mortality. So I'm going to go with gastric tube feeds are probably fine in most patients, obviously with some exclusions I'd already mentioned. All right. So um, that was a whirlwind. I think we, we busted a lot of myths. Um, and I don't know about you guys, but I'm definitely hungry now. Um, so as usual, thanks for listening. Um, we hope this episode is really giving you a comprehensive 50,000 foot view of what nutrition looks like in the ICU. And hopefully we've covered uh, some of the relevant literature um, uh, for, you, for, your for you guys. Uh, as usual, thank you and uh, dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.